Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So inflation numbers are out and prices rose at a 7.5% annual clip, according to the Department of Labor's latest data. Now, Joe Manchin was quickly out with an I told you so, and he has framed his opposition to the Build Back Better Act as rooted in a fear of what he calls the inflation tax. Where I'm at right now, the inflation that I was concerned about, it's not transitory, it's real, it's harming every West Virginian, the cost of gasoline, the cost of groceries. But a significant chunk of that has nothing at all to do with federal spending, but is instead a function of rising energy prices. When oil prices rise, we not only pay more at the pump, we pay more for everything that's produced using energy, which is nearly everything. So that puts oil prices right in the center of not just our domestic politics, but our foreign policy, too. Now, since we last covered the war in Yemen on this podcast a year ago, after Biden promised to end support for Saudi Arabia and the UAE's, quote, offensive operations there, the war has only ramped up and the conditions on the ground have only gotten worse. The question for American foreign policymakers seems to be, how many Yemeni lives are we willing to trade for how many new barrels of oil? This week, President Biden and Saudi King Salman spoke and oil production was on the agenda. But Jared Kushner is still at work in the region. The autocrats there appear to be hoping they can wait out and perhaps help drive out the Biden administration to get back to the more explicitly transactional politics of the last administration. Bloomberg reported Thursday that Kushner recently met with the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, while in Saudi Arabia, and he met as well with the head of the country's national oil company, raising money for his new investment firm. So Saudi has both the current administration and an administration in waiting, both making pitches, giving them options to choose from. I'm told by regional sources Kushner also went to Qatar for meetings, but came up empty there. Not surprising given his hostile posture toward the Qataris while he was in the White House. Drones originating in Yemen have begun successfully striking Abu Dhabi, changing the nature of this conflict. My colleague Ken Klippenstein broke the news this week that the Biden administration is now considering reversing itself and taking the major step of designating the Houthis in Yemen as a foreign terrorist organization. Ken joins us today to help unpack all of this, and I'm also happy to welcome back Shireen Aladimi, a Yemeni-born assistant professor at Michigan State University who writes and speaks frequently on the conflict. Ken Klippenstein and Shireen Aladimi, thank you so much for joining me. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. And so, Ken, I want to start with you to talk about the call this week uh, between uh, King Salman and, and of Saudi Arabia and, and President Biden. Uh, you compared the two different readouts that each country gave of that call and found one noticeable uh, difference. T tell us about that. Yeah, so during that call, King Salman's transcript um, includes something in it that uh, the U.S.'s transcript of Biden's conversation did not, and that was King Salman asserting his obligations to OPEC+. Plus. If you look at the uh, U.S.'s readout, it just describes how they talked about the importance of uh, maintaining the stability of the oil markets. Now, um, OPEC+, plus refers to the uh, 
group of oil-producing nations, of which Saudi Arabia is the leading member, along with Russia and a bunch of others, uh, where they you know agree to set prices. And the um, interesting context to this is that President Biden has, for months now, been urging the Saudis to increase production because they have a very low production quota right now, which is uh, driving up gas prices in the U.S., uh, driving up prices of goods because of that. And MBS has refused to do that so far, or King Salman. And so um, what the discrepancy between those two readouts suggest is that uh, Biden asked to, once again, to, as he has publicly, um, to increase production and that the Saudi government has declined to do so, say, saying, you know, we have to we have to stick with OPEC plus here. Right. And, and very telling that that Biden's team chose not to put that onto the readout because they clearly, you know, if if he had pledged, OK, yeah, I'll help you out with gas prices, you can believe that's some diplomatic version of that would have been put into the U.S. version of the readout. So clearly they were not happy with the answer. The Saudis, though, uh, other than King Salman, were not happy, I assume, with the call itself. In in other words, who was on the call? President Biden throughout the campaign came after uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, who has become the kind of de facto ruler, and insisted you called him a pariah, said, I'm not going to deal with him, and has insisted on not treating him as the actual head of Saudi Arabia and instead wants to interact uh, with King Salman as his as his counterpart. And so my sense is like that that is a significant reason why Saudi Arabia keeps keeps telling him no. Now, at the same time, Biden has not really put the brakes on the war in Yemen and has allowed significant weapons shipments to flow out. So, Shireen, can you bring us up to speed on on where the the war in Yemen is at this point, and and who, and who is MBS, and what's his what's his role in this? Yeah, so MBS Mohammed bin Salman um, is the one who launched this offensive in Yemen in uh, March of 2015. This was just two months after he became deputy crown prince and defense minister at the time. Now he's crown prince and de facto ruler, people would say, and uh, launched this offensive ostensibly to restore, you know, Yemen's uh, UN-recognized president to power, called it decisive storm, you know, didn't end in two weeks as he expected. And here we are almost seven years later, and um, it's very much seen as his war alongside, of course, um, the Emirates, the UAE, and his allies in the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries. And so the war has not gotten any better. It's gotten worse. There was some hope when Biden took office because of certain things he said during the campaign trail. Of course, we know this uh, support for the war began under the Obama-Biden administration in 2015. But Biden started making statements, like you said, about making MBS a pariah, about ending all weapons sales, being his campaign being very explicit about ending all forms of support to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. He said they're going in killing innocent children and women and we should we should I will I will put an end to this. Um a year ago he announced officially in his first policy, foreign policy speech that he was going to end and he here, you know, enter a random distinction here, a dichotomy um he said he was going to end the offensive operations in Yemen and he was going to end relevant arms sales. And he's done the opposite. He's not ended the war. He's not ended U.S. support for the war. He has helped him launch, launch, continue to launch offensives in Yemen. Um, he approved the weapon sales that he paused temporarily to review both to the Saudis and to the UAE. Um, and 
is now considering designating the Houthis as as terrorists. And so he's in many ways kind of escalated or at least kept things um, as they were during the Obama and the Trump administrations. Right. So other than the direct audience with Biden, it, it does seem like MBS is getting everything that he's he's wanted. He's the, the war is the war is continuing. The weapons are continuing to flow. Uh, he has not given Biden what he wants on the on the gas gas prices. I'm, I'm sure that the Biden team believes that, you know, a significant chunk of their collapse in approval rating you know, is co- is connected to gas prices. Pol- politicians heading into midterms. If you don't care about anything more than gas prices. And so it, it, it goes to one of the problems, one of the many problems of linking your entire economy to fossil fuels is that people like the, the Houthis in, in a country like Yemen then gets kind of caught up and becomes a fifth or sixth or seventh level concern for you know, foreign policymakers as, as they're working through these issues. And I want to unpack what you said about the the effort to get them designated as foreign terrorists can you you scooped this week uh, that there there is serious deliberation within the white house to do that and 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 pressure what what have you learned about the push to make uh the the to designate the houthis as terrorists yeah so when i first heard uh, president biden uh you know say that we're looking into it i thought oh maybe this is just him trying to look like he's taking this seriously you know for the benefit of the uae so i started poking around and pretty quickly folks in the intelligence community told me that the nsc national security council had in fact um held formal meetings uh and they were disseminating something called a policy options paper that sort of delineates um, choices that uh, policymakers have with respect to uh, foreign policy. And at, that in addition to that, they discussed this uh, policy options paper last week, Friday, in what's called a um, deputies uh, committee meeting, uh, which is very senior administration officials from the um, different agencies, not just within NSC, but uh, representing um, departments like the State Department, where they uh, discussed the advisability of this course of action. So it really looks like he is taking this seriously and that that wasn't just um, you know, rhetoric that that he was putting forward, and so Shireen, who who are the Houthis, and and who wants them designated as terrorists, and what would be the implications of that? So the Houthis came to prominence in their late nineties and early two thousands in Yemen when they were calling against, um, speaking out against corruption by the Yemeni government at the time, uh, both internally and also the influence of Saudi Arabia in Yemen and the influence of the U.S. in Yemen. Um, and this led to six different fights with the pre- with the President Saleh at the time, the government in Yemen, uh, in the early 2000s. And Saleh enlisted the help of the Saudis to fight the Houthis, and they didn't succeed in any of these fight- fights. And the idea was that, well, these guys are, are, are at your border, you know, you risk it's in your own national interest, um, security interest, to, to help join this fight against the Houthis before they become a big problem. And... Um, they, in fact, just grew as a movement, and uh, they tried to enlist the help of the U.S. in the fight against the Houthis at the time under the accusation that they were getting weapons and support from Iran, but there was no evidence to support that. And so the U.S. didn't, in fact, get involved in the early 2000s against the Houthis. But um, in the wake of the 2011 Arab Spring in Yemen and kind of this revolution that was still in tumult years later, the Houthis ended up taking over the capital, Sana'a, in late 2014 to apply pressure to the interim government at the time. And they still were able to sit down in early 2015 with various factions of the government and other parties in Yemen 
And under the supervision of the UN envoy at the time, Jamal bin Omar, they were able to form a unity government, a coalition government. And Jamal bin Omar writes in Newsweek and, you know, last year, the year before, he explains how um, he was in communication with the Saudis and they were thinking about where to sign this agreement. Yemen was finally going to have some kind of coalition government and the Saudis began bombing to, you know, two days later. So the Houthis since then have uh, become much um, stronger as a movement. They have enlisted the help of many tribes in Yemen and they have formed a an armed opposition to the Saudi-led coalition um, since 2015. And so what, what has the UAE's role been in this? Like which, out, out of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who's taking a more active role in this contest? They're both actively involved in Yemen and have been since 2015. The coalition the, that began bombing Yemen um, was formed largely with um, UAE and, and Saudi military. Uh, but the UAE has actually taken an interesting role. So they're not just bombing like the Saudis are, but they created a sort of police state in areas that they control in South Yemen. So they've been there have been investigations by the AP that uncovered at least 18 secret prisons that were operated by the UAE, where there was documented evidence of torture. Um, the UAE has been involved in battles on the ground in northern Yemen in Ma'rib to try to take that over from the Houthis. They have been kind of taking over various Yemeni islands uh, and operating tourists. They've made them into tourist just destinations, essentially. And we're talking about really interesting and, you know, just spectacular islands off the south coast of Yemen that this uh, UAE has taken over. And they've been controlling the um, gas liquefaction plants and Yemeni ports in the south. And so they've had much more strategic and commercial interests in Yemen whereas the Saudis just seem to want to bomb their way through winning this war. So I would say that the UAE has had a much more nefarious role in Yemen than the Saudis. And, and Ken, who's kind of leading the charge in Washington to push for this uh, terrorist designation? Definitely the UAE, but um, to my surprise, also the Israeli government, um, and I'm working on a story about this now, has been pushing for this, not just uh, to the White House, but members of Congress as well. What's their interest in the situation? What I'm told um, is that they are doing this as a favor to the UAE pursuant to the Abraham Accords and their much closer relationship um, with these Gulf nations uh, because of that Trump era agreement, you know, that agreement that was framed, I think, disingenuously as a peace agreement when um, in in practical terms, what it's meant is um, a more overt relationship, you know, like we're seeing now in uh pushing for the um, Yemen conflict to continue going, but then also providing surveillance and intelligence equipment for these um, Gulf monarchies to repress their own people. And what, what argument are, are they making in Washington? That what, like, why, why should the U.S. do what they're asking? Well, one point they're advancing now that they didn't used to as much in the past is that um, there's a zero-sum game between the U.S. and China. And if we don't give them everything they want, they're going to, you know, run to the arms of China. So we'd better, we better do that. And they've been very effective at placing strategically. If you talk to folks in the intelligence community, they're very skeptical about all these news articles about, for instance, uh, a couple months ago, it came out that there was a, you know, supposedly secret military base that the Chinese were erecting in the UAE and everybody panicked. All the political, all the political folks, the appointees panicked about that. You talk to folks in the intelligence community, they say, there's no way we didn't. We already knew about, we knew about this years ago. This is a, you know, they're much more cynical about what it means. They, they think that they're playing the press and trying to get everyone scared so that, oh, we better give them whatever concessions they want so that they, they don't work with the Chinese instead of us. When in reality, 
we are the partner of choice in the region. You know, we there's so many strategic and structural reasons that they would rather work with the Americans than with the Chinese government. Yeah, and Shireen, how are you seeing China's role in the in the region play out? China's role is interesting. When the war in Yemen began in 2015, a couple months later, the Chinese um, built a base uh, or began negotiating for building a base on um, the other side of the strait. So Yemen controls Bab al-Mandab Strait. Um, and on the other side is Djibouti. And they set up their first international base in Djibouti. And the negotiation started in 2015, just after the war began. And they were um, the base was constructed in 2017, which apparently, by the, according to the UN, or to the New York Times, it was to the surprise of the Americans at the time. And so they realized the importance of that, you know, Yemen's strategic location. This often is get, gets construed as like, oh, it's about curtailing Iranian influence. But really, Yemen has a geopolitical um, location that the U.S. and the Saudis and the Emiratis are interested in. Their oil and oil products, 6.2 million barrels a day, are still traveling through that strait. Um, plus, you know, world shipping um, Everything going to the through the Suez Canal has to go through Yemen first um, and back from there as well. And so uh, I think that's one aspect, but I would agree that this is just kind of an overstating of uh, China's role because um, all of their weapons they're getting from the U.S. and there's no way for them to just switch over to China. It would require an entirely different weapon system to be able to accept uh, Chinese weapons, for example, a process that could take 10 years to even get to. And so China is not going to be supplying the UAE with any significant weapons or anything like that. They're still very much reliant on the U.S. for that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. The other new development in this in this war is that the war has started to come home to the UAE. There, there have been all of these reports and some videos of of Houthi kind of run uh, drones that have that have been able to make it to Abu Dhabi and and launch drone strikes. Uh, there early in the war, and I'm sure you remember that the, the UAE lost several dozen of of their own of their own fighters, you know, mostly the Emiratis are fighting with mercenaries there, but several dozen of, of, of their, of their, of their own citizens were killed. And it was like a nine 11, like event for the Emiratis because they had not experienced that, that type of war coming home to, you know, to the UAE more used to like the United States does now where we, we bring, we bring the wars overseas. We're not used, but we're not used to it blowing back. So how is, how, how have the, the strikes hitting Abu Dhabi changed everybody's calculation about this war? Well, 
they called it a war and they wanted to call it a war for all these years, but they didn't expect people to fight back. And so what was it then in the last seven years? Was it a genocide? Because that's what it looks like when you have um, the UAE reacting as though 9-11 happened to them when they lost fighters in Yemen, occupying Yemeni, uh, Yemeni lands and fighting inside Yemen. Um, and no civilian deaths in the UAE until recently, where there were three civilian deaths with um, Houthi drones. And on the other side of this, we are talking about 377,000 Yemeni civilians dead by 20, the end of 2021. We're not even counting the fighters here. And they are killed either by bombs that the U.S. continues to supply, or they have been starved to death uh, at a rate of a child dying once, one child dying every 75 seconds because of the blockade that's been imposed on Yemen. And so this has been asymmetrical warfare from the beginning, and they are just trying to now craft this as a Houthi instigation, that the Houthis have started this. And so we are responding to Houthi attacks by, let's say, what they did in Saada recently, which is target a water facility that cut water to 126,000 people, or they shut, you know, shut communication lines that turned the internet off of the entire country of Yemen for four days. Uh, or hit a prison in northern Yemen that killed 90 people, 90 prisoners. And so they're framing this as uh, counterstrikes. And um, and I think some media sources have kind of went along with that and have gone along with that narrative, um, not realizing that the UAE has never left Yemen. They have been bombing Yemeni civilian targets, infrastructure, water, civilians in their homes and their schools, and even weddings and funerals for all of these years. And um, the Houthis fighting back now is being considered a terroristic act and not part of war, which they started in Yemen in 2015. Yeah. And, and Ken, shortly after one of these first successful uh, drone strikes, you had the, the UAE ambassador kind of immediately meeting with the U.S. Secretary of State. And, and you really got the sense that they considered this to be uh, an event of, like, of enormous consequence. Um, when, as Shireen said, it's, it's a years-long war. I think Shireen puts it well. It's either, it's either war or it's genocide. And so how has, how has the UAE been able to kind of make its case here in the U.S. That, there's, that, there, that it's okay for them to attack Yemen, but Yemen responding is some type of a war crime that the United States needs to respond to by designating the organization as a bunch of terrorists? Well, they have a PR apparatus um, that is the envy, I'm sure, of, you know, almost any country. And you compare that to Yemen, they have no media apparatus to speak of in, in Washington. And so in addition to that, there's a lot of money at stake. Um, if you look at what happened to the um, Emirati stock market after some of the strikes, um, it took a hit. It fell by a several percentage points. Uh, my colleague, Murtaza Hussein, had a very good story recently that encouraged people to read, describing how this sort of... Uh, pierced this perception that the UAE, uh, and not an untrue perception, was, uh, you know, rel a relatively peaceful area, um, you know, comp as compared with its um, neighbors. For example, Saudi Arabia has had these missiles from the Houthis going on for a number of years now. So this was, this was a change in not just the sense that it was safe there, but also a perception by foreign investment, potentially, that they would want to base themselves there if this is going to continue to become more unstable. Now, uh, the simple solution to that is just to not be involved in the war. You don't, <laughs> have, a, you don't have a yeah. problem anymore with the Houthis, yeah. But unfortunately, they're really set on doing this, and you know, I, I think that I think that money is a huge consideration here because if you can, 
um, removed from that country, it's it's almost unique um, reputation for you know relative stability. Um, you know that can have a big effect on foreign investment. Yeah, and Shireen, when I saw those dro- those drone strikes happen, the, the first thing I thought was, you know, oh lord, they're gonna they're gonna just they're gonna respond and just carpet bomb in response. And like you said, one of the first things they did was shut down the entire internet. Yeah. For for days on end. Uh, and then launched an extraordinary round of of strikes in response. But I, I kind of feel crazy watching the, this all unfold, asking the question, why won't it just end? Like, wh- what, what, whose interests are being served by this continuing year after year to drag out, particularly now that both Saudi Arabia and the UAE are taking at least some, you know, incoming fire as well? I think this is a classic case of hubris. You are talking about two of the world's most rich countries, the wealthiest countries, wealth that we've never even seen before, pummeling essentially for seven years, one of the world's poorest countries, certainly the poorest in the Middle East, and on its way to becoming the poorest country in the world because of what happened over the last seven years. And they disabled Yemeni Air Force in the first 48 hours. So the Houthis don't even have a helicopter. They don't have even a civilian airplane, right? They can't control the airspace in any way. All they have is fighters on the ground with uh, a very strong ideology that is based on sovereignty and independence. Yemenis are not going to give up this fight on the ground, whether they're Houthi supporters or not. And this is what we've seen for the past seven, seven years. They have a stake in making sure that they are not an occupied territory. They're not occupied by the UAE or the US or Saudi Arabia. Uh, parts of Yemen are under occupation currently that are um, under the have been under the coalition's control since uh, July of 2015. This is the area in Yemen where I'm from, where my family's from in the south. And it's been a complete security mess over the last seven years. You have groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS gaining power in those areas. And you have a government that's supported by the uh, the the Saudi Arabia that's based in Riyadh that has no authority in South Yemen and another government that is um, controlled by the UAE that wants to secede from the north. So it's a complete mess in the south. And people in northern Yemen are looking at this and say, we don't want occupation. We don't want what's happening in the south to happen in North Yemen. And so they've given it their all and they're not going to give up. And the U.S. and the Saudi Arabia and the UAE think that if they just could just blockade the north, then they would surrender and they haven't surrendered. Well, if we can just, you know, bomb half the hospitals and bomb the schools and bomb the infrastructure, then they'll just give up and they haven't give up. Well, if we can just designate them as terrorists, which is what Trump did, and then Biden undid in his first acts of office, uh, then they're going to give up. And they've seen that they just have not given up because what has, what do Yemenis have to lose at this point other than their sovereignty? Whereas the UAE has everything to lose, it's security, like you mentioned, Ken. Um, and the Saudis have a lot to lose, but they are seeing this as a very embarrassing situation to just kind of leave because how have they not been able to win this fight against a bunch of people who don't even have an airplane? Um, and so they just continue putting money into this, hoping that it'll just get better. I mean, can't can't the U.S. coach them on how to declare victory and lose a war? I mean, that's that's what rich, hubristic <laughs> countries do now, right? <laughs> Launch impulsive wars, stay too long. And then eventually recognize that we've lost, and then say we've won and and leave. That it's complicated if you if you lose right as you're, you know, leaving. I mean, <laughs> I I had a conversation with Tim Lenderking, who was the uh, Biden envoy to Yemen. I had a conversation with him over the year, just a couple of weeks after 
the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I said to him, don't do what you've done in Afghanistan. Wait 20 years only to realize that the tribes are going to take over and Afghanis are going to rule Afghanistan. Um, and that's what's going to happen in Yemen. Yemen is a tribal society. They will work it out. They will do whatever strategic deals are necessary for different groups to come together and sort out their own issues. And the U.S. is going to look like a fool, just like they did in Afghanistan after 20 years. Don't let this drag for 20 years. But so I don't think the U.S. has a great track record either here of understanding when to leave mm -hmm. uh, and when to leave it to the people. And so you're dealing with three countries that are hugely, um, I mean, for the U.S., it's been a gigantic commercial boost, right? It's um, That's true. It's true. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. And because the Emiratis and the Saudis don't even make, you know, handguns, let alone grenades and fighter jets and all of the things that they've been dropping on Yemen. So that strike, for example, that killed 90 prisoners, the serial number was traced to Raytheon. The strike a couple of years ago where they bombed a school bus full of 40 kids, the serial number was traced to Lockheed. So all of these U.S. manufacturing companies, weapon manufacturing companies, are making hundreds of billions of dollars. So the U.S. has no incentive to stop as long as there's no representation for Yemen in the U.N. Um, there's no you know, media pressure to end this war. There's just been nothing. There's been operating um, in Yemen committing all of these war crimes with impunity for all these countries involved. So they'll just keep going and, you know, the Saudis can just continue to try to bomb their way through it. And unfortunately, what we're seeing in the U.S. as well is the lack of commitment from Congress like we've seen in, in past years. But hopefully that'll change soon. Uh, what did the what did Lundergan say, the envoy? Well, at first he was surprised. He said, well, what do you want us to do? Just leave it up to Yemenis to sort it out. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what you need to do. Like, Crazy how dare idea. You? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how is this a shocking thing to to understand? Um, and he was actually talking as though he was a neutral party, as though he was trying to um, negotiate some kind of deal between the Houthis and the Saudis. And I had to stop him there. I said, well, the Houthis won't meet with you, first of all. And how are you a neutral party? You've been bombing Yemen. You've been supporting the one side. Um, and he thought I overstated U.S. Um, uh, kind of support for this war, but acknowledged that they have been supporting them every step of the way. I mean, logistics, training, spare parts, maintenance, weapons, uh, choosing targets, mid-air refueling until 2018. How has the U.S. not been an active partner in this war to the point where Congress passed a war powers resolution directing Trump to end his support for this war, um, recognizing it as active warfare? And so I think he was kind of taken aback by my suggestion that you should just leave it up to Yemenis to sort it, sort it out because there's this idea that, oh, these people just don't know how to govern themselves. We need this intervention and we need to insert our own dominance here. And, and your point, too, about the weapon sales is is a key one because, you know, everybody in Washington is happy when the when the weapons are being shipped out and the checks are, are coming in and the property values in Northern Virginia are, are skyrocketing. But if you build up enough of a, of a weapon capacity, at, at some point, they're, they're going to be used. That is the, that is the point of these weapons. And, and I, I think that you're probably right that a significant amount of this is the Emiratis used a significant amount of their wealth to build up this, this massive store of arms. And what good is a store of arms if you, if you don't occasionally use it? And so when you're when you're in the meeting making decisions about foreign policy and, and you're sitting there on this warehouse of, you know, uh, bombs and, and planes, you know, that, that becomes a very easy solution to, to point to. And the, the U.S., like you said, is happy to replenish their supplies when, when needed. And Ken, uh, you know, 
speaking of kind of dollar diplomacy, you know, Qatar, the Emir of Qatar was recently in, in Washington and shortly after his uh, meeting with Biden announced this, this surprise multi-billion dollar deal uh, for 50 large cargo planes uh, that uh, is going to inject, you know, massive amount of money into the American economy. Qatar has been at odds with the UAE and Saudi Arabia for for years now. You know how how is their kind of return to the diplomatic fold, uh, sh- you know, shaping any of this? Well, it's kind of interesting. I think uh, Biden is up against a wall now because um, Saudi and UAE have so clearly thrown in with the Republicans under the uh, Trump administration. Yet still getting everything they need right. from Democrats, which is pretty impressive. Right. And so I saw the um, you know invitation or the um, recognition of Qatar as a you know key non-NATO ally as him trying to find someone, anyone <laughs> that he can work with as a sort of countervailing force, not necessarily hostile to the UAE and Saudi, but some other party that one can work with because they're a little bit more, you know, it's, it's complicated. I don't want to overstate the conflict between those parties, but, but, you know, they're a little bit more independent in some ways. And Shireen, some progressives in Congress are, are now pushing a, another war powers resolution to try to end, end the war. Others are pushing for legislation that would ban the U.S. from doing maintenance on any planes that are involved in in these operations, which apparently would, as, as I understand it, would shut shut everything down overnight. Like they need they need to be maintained, and and they need to ma- be maintained by American personnel um, or interests, like yeah. pretty much after every flight. And so that would that would stop everything cold. Is that the only path out of this, what, or, or or is there some other diplomatic? avenue that I'm missing. I mean, the U.S. has lost every kind of credibility because they've been an active partner in this war. And so for the U.S. to play any diplomatic role, is I, I, I can't see that happening. Um, the Saudis and the Emiratis are applying tremendous pressure in the U.N. Even as uh, recently as October, they stopped funding this independent body of investigators um, who are investigating war crimes and violations against human rights committed by all parties in Yemen. And the UN stopped funding this group of eminent experts. Um, and it was later revealed that it's because, you know, uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis were using pressure and incentives and threats to make sure that they could continue to investigate their own crimes in Yemen. Um, and so that's been allowed to happen. So we're talking about, you know, again, operating with impunity over the last several years. But I think in the on, on the side on the co- congressional front, we should have moved. Congress should have moved a year ago and not relied on Biden's kind of word to end the war and to stop supporting uh, or stop whatever he designated arbitrarily as offensive versus defensive or relevant versus irrelevant arms sales. And it's been difficult to be honest, trying to get even our progressive supporters in Congress to to launch a war powers resolution. Until now, when we heard from. DeFazio and, and Jayapal that they're interested in doing this by March. But, you know, you have people who are just waiting to for Biden to fulfill his word. Congress has asked multiple times, you know, what do you mean by offensive versus defensive? And they've not received any kind of cogent response from, from the Biden administration. The NDAA, the National Defense uh, Budget, was challenged um, in the summer for weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, and that didn't go anywhere. So, 
I think there just needs to be huge pressure from Congress because, again, they get to declare war and not the president, um, and they need to reassert their authority over war making. So that's one avenue. And the other avenues to try to block arms sales. But what's really disheartening is people like Chris Murphy, who was one of the leaders of the um, War Powers Movement Resolution in 2017, 18, 19, and even as early as 2015, calling out the Obama administration for weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. He, too, voted to approve arms sales to Saudi Arabia recently, and um, he's buying into this offensive versus defensive distinction. So it's really disheartening to see um, how difficult this has become in Congress when there's a Democratic president. When, when you would talk to some of the offices that had been supportive in the past of you know, ending this war, what were the indications that you got about what their hesitation was at, at moving you know, faster and more aggressively on the on the on the Biden administration. So when I spoke to Rokana, for example, he said that he's just um, not convinced that we continue to support the Saudi-led coalition in the same way. Um, he thought that we're not sharing intelligence anymore for offensive purposes. And I said, "But do you even know what that means?" And he said, "You know, well, we just know that it's defensive now and not offensive." And so it's like he needed more proof to be able to move. Um, whereas, you know. In January 2021, before Biden made this announcement, he was saying that he's ready to introduce another war powers. And so it just seems like they are, um, they feel like they don't have enough proof anymore because the administration is saying that they are not sharing intelligence for offensive purposes or they're not, you know, um, helping with strikes for offensive reasons. And so they feel like the burden of proof has gotten more difficult. But um, I think it's just a little more political than that. It was easier to stand up to a Republican president, uh, and it's just harder to stand up to a Democratic president. And unfortunately, the I mean, they should be shouting, screaming at the top of their lungs, uh, considering what you know Ken revealed with this serious consideration of the FTO. This will spell genocide to the 20 million Yemeni people, 80% of the population. That's what B- Biden is doing by considering this. And it should be met with fierce opposition by everybody, every lawmaker, because how can a president just casually be considering genocide? Like, this is what we're saying here. This is what we're doing in Yemen. And the Biden administration knows this. He delisted the Houthis as terrorists in one of his first acts in office. And the State Department at the time said that they heard the UN, they heard aid groups, they understand this is going to make the humanitarian crisis worse. And yet they're going through with it anyway as a political move. And last question, but you know, from the people that you talk to in, in Yemen, what, what are the conditions like now? I, I, I'm sure that different regions of the country are facing different conditions, but uh, is, there, is there anything you can generalize or, or any, anywhere specifically that is, that's, that's worse off? How, how are things there compared to how they were a year ago, uh, two years ago, or 10 years ago? I mean, the effect of the blockade just means, I mean, the blockade has not been lifted. Uh, Yemeni airspace still continues to be controlled by the Saudi-led coalition. So people are still trapped in most of the country. They're not able to leave to seek treatment, to seek refuge. There's no large Yemeni refugee crisis. And so people are just internally displaced, over 4 4 million people right now. Um, You know, half the population has no access to a hospital. The other half that does have an access to the hospital, you know, I, I was speaking to somebody the other day just when the internet came back and we were able to reconnect with people in Yemen. In Yemen. And he said that a nephew of his died, a four-year-old, because he had a fever and there's just no medicine. So child just dies because there's no over-the-counter medication for something like a, like a fever. And these deaths don't get counted, you know? 
I always think when my kids get get fevers or get a, get a bad fever and we're able to and we're able to treat it, able to e- either you know bring it down or or with antibiotics think think about how awful you know it must have been how terrifying it must have been for parents you know 100 150 years ago when yeah. when these technologies weren't available and medicines weren't available and people would would die needlessly like this and it's it's terrifying to think that in, in 2022 you'd have a 4-year-old uh, get a fever and just die from it. Yeah, and this happens in every household and so let's say you have an infection and you don't have medicine antibiotics, right? Um, let's say you need a dialysis and there's no uh, fuel in the hospital to operate the machines. Uh, let's say you have cancer and, again, you don't have access to any cancer medication because of the blockade. And so people are dying of preventable things. Like you said, you know, it's it's really horrific to think that this is happening in 2022. It's happening at a large scale, larger than we've seen in anywhere. Like there's no one country in the world where 80% of the people are are dependent on aid, where 50% of people have no access to a hospital, where, you know, 4 million people are displaced internally and there's no refugee crisis because they're completely blockaded. And so when we say world's worst humanitarian crisis, it's people's everyday lives. They're either going to be bombed while, while they're sleeping or they're going to die of very preventable things like a, like a small fever or, you know, um, coronavirus or um, diabetes or anything, any of the things that modern medicine has been able to to resolve or, or starvation because there's no food and there's no fuel. And so, um, you know, again, every 75 seconds, a child is dying because they're being starved to death and our government continues to support this. But things are going great in the Virginia and Maryland suburbs. The money keeps flowing. Exactly. Uh, Ken, Shireen, thank you so much for joining me. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. That was Shireen Aladimi and Ken Klippenstein, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Sharif Youssef. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.